Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani, and I'm your host. Um, my name is Bangizane, and I'm studying psychology. The RCC is uh, the Student Representative Council. It's supposed to represent any uh, matters that uh, students have regarding everything in school, basically. I think they're doing a good job because I know some people who are able to come back to school this year uh, because of the RCC. And I'm kind of one of them, actually. So, yeah, I think it was kind of, as much as it interrupted a lot of things with the exams and everything, but I think it was kind of a good movement. In today's episode, we aim to get some insight into the current landscape in student politics. Our guest today is Rory Sang Mosedi, who is the current president of the Students' Representative Council at UCT. As many listeners will know, the Roads Must Fall movement originated at UCT in April 2015, and since then, we've seen many more protests and debates about transformation taking place at that institution. It's not alone, of course. Those debates have been taking place at other institutions also. So how do student leaders see and articulate and think about some of the issues that we're facing in the higher education sector today? Let's hear from Rory Sang. Okay, so a warm welcome and hello to Rory Sang Mosedi, who is current president of the SRC at UCT. Thank you so much for joining us, Rory Sang. Thank you so much for having me. Um, we're really looking forward to hearing your views on a, on a number of issues. Cool. <laughs> so perhaps we could kick off with your general view on how the current state of things at universities from the student perspective. What are students concerned about? What are students worrying about? What are students feeling passionate about in terms of all of the very momentous things that have happened over the past year from roads must fall to fees must fall? Where are we at right now in the student body and in student politics? Wow, so that's a very broad question. I can really speak from a perspective of particularly student representatives and leaders um, and just the issues and the conversations that we've been dealing with um, at multiple levels. I think Students are concerned about their accessibility to higher education, particularly to tertiary institutions like universities that are well-resourced, that are positioned to provide them with the best sort of education possible to them or accessible to them. I mean, what does that look like? It's concerns around how much they're paying and whether or not they can afford it, whether or not they are safe in residences, whether they have a residence to stay in whether they are able to provide for themselves in terms of food, if they have access to resources like books. Um, students are concerned around their safety in and around campus. Um, students are concerned about the rising, often not spoken about, sexual assault, rape and harassment that happens across our campuses. Students are worried about what they're learning. They're worried that the curriculum that they are uh, engaging with on a daily basis doesn't engage them, doesn't reflect their reality, and they are desperate to see a change in that, a um, an academic space that is conducive to learning and expression, 
um, that reflects their experiences, but also enables them to redefine themselves, to find themselves in new academic spaces. So overall, students are, are interested in a number of issues that, you know, fall into or branch into sub-issues and other sub-sub-issues. Students are South Africans and they are interested in making their lives and the lives of their communities and their country and continent better and being sort of social actors and, or actors of change. But we are realizing what a mammoth task and how many things we need to change and invest in as a society. Um, as opposed to, you know, just simply looking at their own reality um, and their everyday experience. Yeah, I think you've summed up there pretty much the, the broad range of issues that have occupied a lot of us in terms of thinking about university life in the past couple of years. So maybe you could give us your perspective on the events that unfolded at UCT around just over a year ago, right? As the Roads Must Fall movement built up, it was a really important, very visible, very vocal movement. And some would argue that they achieved some very profound successes in terms of expanding public awareness of questions around transformation. So from where you, from your position, from where you sat as a student at UCT, I'm not sure how involved you were in that movement. How would you kind of look back on that time as an important moment or an important starting point in addressing some of the things that you've sketched out? So, I mean, for me, it's um, very interesting. I think a year ago, a lot of us were feeling a bit shattered and we were at home trying to recover. Little did we know that uh, there would be a new rise of activism in the second semester. But, you know, Roads Must Fall was particularly important in starting conversations and really fast-tracking a lot of the things that I think were put on halt, especially at UCT. I was a student. I wasn't in student governance, but I was active. I was at the occupations, at the discussions. And, and it's probably one of the main reasons why I decided to run for student governance, because I understood the importance of continuing these conversations and institutionalizing this change. And also realizing that a lot of the issues that were tackled in those spaces were big macro questions, but students still struggled with daily, you know, experiences that, you know, marginalized them. And we needed to do work every single day to try and make the student experience a little better. So I think Roads Must Fall as a movement was important to create awareness, as you've already said, and around the difference, or at least the failure, I think, of transformation as we understand it. Um, as this quantitative numbers game that South Africa has seen it in the sort of equity targets and things like that. And um, really an add the nuance and add content to ideas of, you know, decolonization. Even that term is really big, right? And it encapsulates so much. And the real task, I think, post roads must fall, at least roads must fall as a, as a hashtag that, that had nation or even global consciousness. Uh, the real task is right now, is unpacking that and, and creating and seeing where we need to change and what that change looks like. So, you know, we're in the process right now at UCT where we're trying to look at our curriculum. It's very hard because you have a lot of internal resistance from the academic right and conservatives and people who are perhaps comfortable in the status quo. We're looking at our surroundings. We're looking at the naming of our buildings and seeking to change them. We're looking at you know, the kind of artwork that's on our walls. But I think it's not even nearly enough if our institutional culture um, doesn't change when appointments are still predominantly white people and white males in particular. Uh, our, our institutional culture encourages people to stay silent, 
rather than live and fulfill a full expression of themselves. So we have a lot of work to do. And Roads Must Fall was significant in institutionalizing the conversation of real transformation and highlighting uh, to the world that higher education in South Africa and Africa in particular needs to radically transform and needs to radically change. But I think, you know, as people say, universities are microcosms of the country. It is clear to me, at least, that the experiences of students at the University of Cape Town are actually reflective of a Cape Town context and reality. I'm originally from Johannesburg, and some of the challenges that some of the students face on a daily basis, especially those who are from uh, your Kailichas or your Langas or your Philippines or Mitchell's Plain, um, I think those experiences gave a lot of energy and power to what Roads Must Fall is and was, simply because their daily realities in a city that's particularly racially and economically divided that feels as though, you know, certain experiences and people are prized over others. And to see that replicated in an institution of higher learning that's supposed to liberate people or give space to people for them to be able to have an opportunity to lift themselves out of poverty, to learn new things, is incredibly traumatic. And it's a huge disappointment. And I think it's particularly, maybe it's different uh, to a VIT experience. I think all institutions need to decolonize and transform, but to varying degrees, right? And that's why, for instance, we're seeing issues of language at Stellenbosch being the, the center of, of the conversation. Issues of language for me, from a UCT perspective, I'm like, wow, that's, that feels like a conversation people had at least 16 years ago. But they, and their, you know, and the institutional reaction to student Activism was almost what I would think would been, have been the reaction at UCT 20 years ago. Every institution is at different places and levels, but I think the communities uh, uh, where these institutions reside, the people who uphold this institution, these institutions, whether they are people who hold uh, actual power in terms of institutional roles or they are people who are benefactors, you know, who donate to, to, to these institutions or the people who had been to these institutions in the form of the, you know, the convocation, though they give expression to a particular culture that's going to take a long time to undo. To, you know, to speak of higher education as a whole sometimes is problematic. You make some really good points there about the different challenges facing different institutions in the country. And I think you've really sketched out quite clearly the legacy of the Roads Must Fall movement. But that makes me wonder... Where does that movement stand now? And I know I'm not suggesting that you speak on behalf of it, but just from your perspective as someone very active in student governance, sitting at the kind of heart of where Roads Must Fall originated, what right now is that particular movement focusing on and are they most concerned with? I think Roads Must Fall, I mean, look, also, it, it's it's so it's so weird, right? It's either you're speaking about Roads Must Fall as a movement like sort of like a semi-organization that has core people who run it, or are we speaking about Roads Must Fall as an idea? So most people will speak, I mean, when they speak, or when they refer to Roads Must Fall as the movement, they're referring to sort of the semi-organization or at least society trying to make it into an organization. Um, and, you know, in answering your question, I think the people who are, who are centrally involved are primarily right now concerned with the fact that a lot of them have been suspended or expelled, facing tribunal for various activities um, throughout this 18 months. I think that's the primary center of our conversation. It's just, 
getting back some of those students into the institution. So can you just spell that out for us a little bit more? For those academic staff who are listening mm-hmm. or any member of the public who's listening, they might, they might not understand precisely what's going on in terms of why are certain students who are involved in these different forms of protest, many of them I felt very creative, very mm-hmm. provocative, very successful mm-hmm. in, in catching public awareness. Mm-hmm. Why are they now in the middle of these disputes about whether or not they're even allowed to be on campus, Mm. if I understand correctly? Mm. Could you kind of just explain that to us a little more and and what perhaps the SRC is doing to support them or to assist them? Mm. Mm. Um, So I think fundamentally the the students who have been facing disciplinary action, a lot of these charges uh, came about as a result of the activities around Shackville. So Shackville was... Effectively, at the beginning of this year, UCT faced a residence crisis of sorts. So, I mean, the residence crisis was, came about as a result of, sort of, of Fees Must Fall, right? So, during Fees Must Fall, we had interruptions to the academic project, um, resulting in delays in exams. And that interfered with people's, you know, psychological and emotional well-being, um, but also sort of practical things like students who were from outside the country who had plans. They obviously needed to leave the institution. Some of them who didn't have the opportunity to write exams. So a lot of students had to write deferred exams for a number of reasons. That's the one group, right, that required residence right before the institution opened for the 2016 academic year. And as a result, there was a delay in academic processing. So normally what happens is students write exams in November. Those results come out as, you know, some students from that process perhaps may not meet the academic requirements to proceed into the next year. Some of them maybe lose fine uh, funding. So your academic place is tied to your residence place. Sometimes you've been in a, a residence or a particular level of residence for too long, so you need to transition to, let's say, from a catering residence to a self-catering residence. So all those changes generally and happen while people are away. And so you have a student move out at the end of, 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 of uh, the November exam period, go home. If they're facing uh, all these challenges or so like academic exclusion, they'll find it at home. They're probably not going to come back to, to the institution unless they obviously know that they have a place. So what does that look like when we are at the beginning of the year? Um, a lot of these processes are now overlapping with students coming back to start the academic year, right? So we now have students who are awaiting uh, results, students who are awaiting outcomes from reappeals admissions committees. You have first-year students who have been promised a place in a residence, but that bed is now occupied by somebody who's writing deferred exams and awaiting their outcome. You have students who are returning students, but who are moving from a catering res to a self-catering res, but their beds are also occupied now, either by a student who uh, has returned earlier than them, or a student who's also awaiting uh, their academic, uh, uh, who's awaiting their academic outcome, and and so those are that the, the kind of groups that that in terms of demand for beds, right? Demands for residence places, and we found ourselves in a situation where the university had actually overprescribed the number of offer letters they gave to first years, so incoming students at first year level, and also students who were going into another tier of residence, right? So from catering to self-catering residences. So you already had uh, uh, pressure on the system without the, the deferred exam situation, which created a huge uh, uh, gap between demand and supply, which uh, resulted in a number of students being homeless, sleeping in lecture theaters, sleeping across the university, struggling to get uh, 
residence or a place to stay off campus because the prices in Cape Town are exorbitantly high. And effectively, what that then meant is that the university had to come to the party and find crisis accommodation that was far bigger than the usual allocation of crisis residence. But this took some time. And then that led to Shackville, right? So Shackville uh, was a protest, uh, I think a fantastic protest, where a shack was erected in the middle of Residence Road, which is on upper campus, effectively blocking through fare of this road. And this road connects the university. So anybody that's been to UCT will know that Residence Road is basically the road you drive or you off ramp off the M3 and you drive onto upper campus onto this road, and which it was effectively blocked, which led to traffic delays and impact on traffic on the actual M3. This led to a sea of complaints from both members within the university and members of the public. And then the university ordered those who, you know, who were occupying or directed the shack to, uh, to take it down and take it out of the road. In fact, uh, apparently the instruction was for them to move it out of the road, but not necessarily that they need to end the protest. I mean, that's debatable. Uh, in February, there was a final letter that was issued to the occupants of the shack. They need to move. They had decided that they would not move. And this, the, yeah, the deadline was five o'clock that afternoon. Five o'clock came. And by that time, they had effectively issued a, a call to students to gather on Jamison Steps, just in front of the, uh, the shack where it was erected. And they held a sort of public meeting to start a conversation around these issues. What then happened uh, was that obviously students were nervous about the action that the university would take. At, the, at this actual meeting, students who had said that um, the university has a history of acting in the evening. So they needed student support to be there effectively to, to, to guard themselves against any uh, police that might be called or uh, private security that might forcibly remove them that had already been um, called onto campus as a, as a result of the first wave of business fall in October, November last year. What then happened was that because I think of the fear that students faced, a lot of things happened that perhaps were unplanned. There were a group of students who went into Fuller Hall uh, residence and uh, went to the dining hall and uh, ate the food. And it was also an extension of the protest to say, you know, if these students uh, who are in Fuller and Smut Hall can uh, have food and be in a place to stay, students who are homeless and don't have a place to stay should also be entitled or have ability to access these uh, resources. And subsequently, in that moment, there in and Fuller Hall. So I don't you know your listeners perhaps obviously may not know Fuller and Smart Hall, but these are probably the old, one of the oldest residences at UCT, and historically uh, used to be residences reserved for people who performed academically well, and then that always boils down to class and and wealth, right? And in Fuller Hall, it's quite an old building. All the dining hall is basically panelled in wood, and there are portraits of former wardens of the residence up. And in Fuller at the time, there were portraits of the, of the wardens, but also there were photographs taken of the actual Fuller Hall residents and house committees throughout the years, because they, they had just held a, a reunion um, a few weeks prior to that. The protesters then took down the paintings and took down the photographs and took them to a fire that they had basically constructed in the middle of the car park, just outside between Fuller and Smart Hall, and proceeded to burn the paintings. Upon burning the paintings, the university then called uh, the South African Police Service to come onto campus because they 
saw the uh, what they call storming of the residence and the burning of these paintings, obviously, as vandalism and destruction to property. And that's when riot police came onto the campus and, and warned them to say they need to, they need to clear the shack, they need to stop the fire. And that's when things effectively spun out of control. I think from the moment those paintings were burned, and according to South African law, they had committed a crime and had broken university rules. It gave the university a, an excuse or an opportunity that they used to call uh, police uh, agencies onto campus. Then there was a car on University Avenue, just outside the uh, biology building. There was a car, a university car that was set on fire. Then there was a bus on lower campus that was set on fire, um, as well as uh, the vice chancellor's office was then also later uh, uh, set alight. So can I just quickly interject? So you've yeah. given us a, a really, I think, clear and detailed narrative of some of the protest events that happened mm. in the first part of this year at UCT. So mm. the students that are currently being disciplined or who are going through various disciplinary processes, mm. are they the ones who are involved in these acts? Well, they are, yeah, they are the ones who are accused of, be, of being involved in these acts. I mean, I don't want to speak with authority on this issue simply because mm-hmm. I, I don't stand the tribunal. I haven't seen the charge sure. sheets, nor do I. I know the full extent of who's been charged and who hasn't and what they've been charged with. But the, you know, any university statements that have been published have effectively uh, stated that these are students who have been expelled and interdicted. Uh, and then that's a big, that's the other one. They've been interdicted because one, they've been seen as a risk to the university given that they um, are suspected or accused or even some, in some cases found guilty of these acts. And what is the SRC's position on the interdict? The SRC's position on the interdict, I think I, it's an interesting question. Uh, we, at the time, after these acts were committed, we had released a statement saying that we are in full support of students uh, protesting. We are in full support of students having access to residence and solving this residence crisis. However, with our conscience, we couldn't condone acts of destruction and violence. And that's our position generally, principally, on, on all forms of protest on our campus. We're not, we're not saying that operations shouldn't, uh, shouldn't be disrupted. In fact, we are for disruption where necessary. But we can't say that a bus that, that our students utilize must be set on fire. Uh, or, you know, especially when it doesn't make sense or that it, it's not necessarily connected to the advancement of our struggles as students. So that's our overarching position on this issue. We don't have a particular uh, position on the interdict per se. But the question of what kinds of protests could be considered acceptable for university, I feel like we don't discuss Mm. enough. On the one hand, Mm. we need to acknowledge that there are those actors who may feel so frustrated or silenced or marginalized that the only way that they can gain Mm. attention is by doing things that some people might consider violent. But on the other hand, you know, there is, like you said, the destruction of common property that's actually meant to be there to serve all members of the community. So I wonder, you know, if you could share with us your views on what kinds of protest, or elaborate a little bit more, because you've already hinted at it a bit, you know, what kinds of protest do you consider productive, constructive, useful, mm. progressive? And which kinds do you think just there's no place for it on a university mm. campus? Look, I think my view is that any protests, one, need to be planned. They need to strategically make sense. Things that are sporadic and that distract our cause or basically set our cause of the advancement of, our, of the struggles of students back are problematic. So you know, if it means that shutting down a university makes no strategic sense, in let's say 
solving or advancing the issue of free education. I would say, look, if there's a better option of it of, of you know, addressing this issue, why are we shutting down the university? Because every protest has a benefit and a cost. So I, you know, I I wouldn't be the kind of person to come out publicly or at least strongly and say, I don't think that, or principally across the the country, I think the burning of property is necessarily bad, right? I think it's bad when it makes no strategic sense. I think it's bad when it only gives rise or gives the opportunity for those who you're actively resisting against to bottleneck or to gatekeep the process of change. I think protests that don't have their roots in a student mandate are problematic. So that's how my tools of analysis that I'd like to use is things need to be clear. Students can buy into the idea, or at least bought into the idea of a shutdown, because we understood that we needed to shut down all our institutions of higher learning in order for us to advance our struggle. Shutdowns meant that we had to burn tires. Shutdowns meant that we had to sometimes physically bar people from entering spaces. And the result of that sometimes means physical altercations. So, you know, a right and a wrong it's very difficult to say it's very it's based on the context it's based on the buy-in it's based on is it the will of the people but personally as a you know more sort of directly to your question personally i find it very difficult to buy into destruction of property especially when it places people's lives in danger i don't think you can ever warrant destroying something uh, without thought and placing especially the people you say you advocate for uh, their lives in, in, a, in a precarious uh, position. Yeah, I have to agree with you on that point. I think you articulated that really well. You know, on, on this note, I'm curious to understand a bit more about your experience of interacting with university management. As someone involved in student governance, have you found management to be confrontational, collaborative, generally supportive of student demands and needs? Where have there been difficulties and where have there been positive ways of working together? I think the protests of last year have been really instrumental in creating a environment where student governance can operate um, and achieve a lot of things that perhaps were seen as ambitious uh, previously. So I think that's, that caveat is important because I think the way student governance is now and the way student governance sort of used to be two years ago fundamentally different. Gov- student governance management relations vary all the time depending on the issue. So for instance, uh, very recently, we as the SRC presented a proposal to the Senate and Council to increase uh, the number of students on, on these structures, so Senate and Council. At Senate, we wanted to double the number of students in there. We also wanted to increase the number of students on council by one. And how did they respond to that? Yeah, that was a very interesting discussion. <laughs> so there was a, there was agreement that the, you know we should increase the number of students on the Senate to 12 students. But Senate you know, wanted to be able to decide or dictate to students as to you know who exactly needs to sit on those seats for a number of reasons. Um, some of those points salient and some of them, I think, border on interference in student governance and student issues. So, you know, you had a situation where the overall philosophy of increased student representation was agreed upon, but they didn't want to increase the capacity of the SRC, for instance. They wanted to have faculty councils be able to nominate. And, and our argument was faculty councils are a substructure of the SRC. There's a fear of politicization of spaces, especially partisan politics, which is interesting. So that was a, an interesting conversation that I think 
revealed the political terrain that we operate in at UCT quite clearly. And then issues, for instance, around fees, that's always a, a contested and an adversarial space, simply because students will always advocate for a lower number. And it's all about how students uh, strategically prepare and engage in those spaces. So whether it's you know, the finance committee or in council to ensure the most equitable number possible. And then there are other issues where, you know, if you're working if students' relations when it comes to, you know, basic needs of students, whether it be residence, ability for a student to access resources academically, personally, needs student support. There is a great amount of support for students and student structures as well. So it really varies on the issue and at the time and the political climate that the issue is being addressed. Personally, I've had a decent uh, uh, working relationship with a number of people who are part of the university management uh, and, and those who work within the SRC and student support services. People are always interested in how the SRC president relates to the vice chancellor and his, you know, his executive team. And my own personal relationship with vice chancellor depends on the issue. Sometimes it's adversarial, sometimes it's collaborative. I, you know, I think for me personally, I would like to see it as as students, we are principled, we have a clear mandate, and we always have our guard up because we're always aware of the fact that, you know, management are always trying to maneuver and lobby people for a number of different things for, you know, their own interests, the interests of their team. So there, it's, it's classic politics. There's always competing interests and where interests you know, collide, there's collaboration, where they contest, there's adversarial contestation. Speaking of adversarial contestations, you mentioned in your comments about your proposal to increase the number of student representatives on Senate, that there's some concern in the UCT Senate about the involvement of party politics in student politics. And this is something I've heard in various forums at WITS as well. And I'm curious to hear your perspective on it. To what extent do the political parties who govern and run for power in the country and in society at large, how do they get involved in campus politics and what kinds of power and influence do the ANC, the EFF, the DA and more have at university level? I mean, I'll speak from my perspective and that's a, a Sasko perspective. And that is to say, look, I, I think, let's say the ruling party, how does the ANC get involved in politics? They rarely do. I think people have this very interesting and hilarious uh, fantasy or idea, uh, especially during uh, actually Fismos Fall and earlier this year, that uh, you know I had a direct line to the Tuli House and that Gwede Mantashe was giving me instructions. But I I, I don't have Gwede Mantashe's number. Uh, Gwede Mant- I, you know I've never actually formally met uh, uh, the Secretary General, for instance. Um, so there's that public perception. But how do they really get involved? They all have. Uh, youth structures and youth leagues. So at WITS, for instance, is the PYA and they contest elections as the PYA. So that's the ANC Youth League, um, SASCO, that's the probably the Young Communist League, as well as perhaps at WITS, it's uh, in the Muslim Students Association, I think that's what it's called. And at UCT, we contested elections as purely as SASCO, that we're trying to, for instance, have a, a, a PYA structure. And how it depends on each institution. So at UCT, we have, you know, SASCO would uh, nominate the people that would be on the list. SASCO National's relationship with SRC deployees is, I mean, we have different spaces that are created for us to have conversations around um, issues across institutions. But, you know, we have a constitution. 
as an organization. We have values that we espouse and different mandates that we carry out at our different institutions. We are held to account on those issues. It's very rare that, or at least it's never happened to me, where the president of SASCO, for instance, calls me to say that I need to do X, Y, Z. And that's not how it works. I'm accountable to the people who have elected me and that's and we have those spaces to basically ask questions. And I think that's the extent of party politics. But I think people are scared of part or partisan politics. They've got clearly defined identities, they have organizational structures, they know that these structures have capacity and power, uh, either to lobby at a national level, but also to organize at a institutional level, and that employees in different structures, whether it be faculty councils or the SRC, are accountable to these structures. And these structures can give instructions to, to the people that, they, that they've sent to represent them. So in a liberal establishment, the idea is always that, you know, somebody is elected and then they form, they become a member of that structure and that, you know, it ends there. Um, whereas in a mass democratic movement space uh, like the ANC, like SASCO, like the ANC Youth League, you are a deployee and you have a mandate and you are a member of the structure and you operate as a member of the structure, but you will be held to account. So what would you say your mandate is as someone who's been deployed by SASCO to a very important and senior position at in, in the UCT SRC? I think my mandate is to stir students quite broadly and to uphold particular values. One of those values is that we will always fight for the working class, for a student. That means that when it comes to free proposals, we need to make sure that access is our primary goal. I need to ensure that we uphold our values of democracy, of engagement with, with our constituencies and our people, to be engaged in conversations. Um, you know, those are sort of the broad things, themes and principles um, that we as an organization uphold. And if, for instance, if I as an SRC president agree or go into a, a fee discussion and I agree to 12%, that would be seen as, as in contravention with our, our philosophies as SASCO. Or if, for instance, I support a admissions policy that seeks to um, ignore the, the, the histories and the legacies of the past, then that would be fundamentally in contravention of the, of the SASCO uh, constitution. So. so perhaps this is a good moment for me to ask about your position, and you can answer either individually or in terms of your position at the moment on the SRC. So the student movement very successfully achieved a zero increment last year. What is your SRC's position now as fee negotiations come up around October again? How are you going to argue for no increases again. And a kind of a bigger question, what kinds of work do you think needs to be done in order to achieve the vision of fee-free education? Well, the UCT SRC took a resolution at the beginning of our term that we support progressive fee structures or progressive fee education. What does that mean? It means that we strongly believe that university should be accessible and that university should be free for children of the working class and a majority of, of the middle class, right? Uh, but we also agree and we acknowledge the fact that we live in a society that is incredibly unequal, in income inequality underpinned on racial lines still uh, holds true, especially at our institution. So it would, it would be unfeasible, but most importantly, unethical uh, and without principle to demand free education for all in the context of the UCT 
where we have the children of ministers, the children of CEOs, of industry pioneers, billionaires and millionaires at our institution uh, who can afford to pay their fees and, and then some. You know, the discussion of how that looks like is, is what is contested. So what that actually means is that our SRC is in support of free education, but how free education looks like, I think, is where the real debate is at. Does free education mean that it's free and then the country imposes a wealth tax? Does it mean that we figure out some formula that allows for a sliding scale of fees? You know, those are the kind of ideas that we are toying around with in our, our proposal and in our spaces as the SRC. So, you know, we are trying to define, along with our colleagues and our comrades across the country, what free education means and what content we can add to that demand, given the constraints and, and, and our legacies uh, of, of this country. To answer your last question quickly as to what kind of work needs to be done, first of all, students are looking for a commitment from government to say, we are committed to achieving free education, in, you know, free higher education, right, for all. And this is how we're going to do it, right? Whether then the government then says, but we need a year to test out models. We just need the commitment. And that's where government is failing. And if they can say we're committed, we, we say we will achieve free education in 2018. And these are the kind of models that we're playing with. I think they have far more buy-in into the conversation and a lot more people engaged. But this you know, continuance of saying that, for instance, this fast is servicing the poor is disingenuous to our economic system and climate, that a, a, a cutoff of what, 122, 130,000 rand and above that constitutes the, the middle class or middle income uh, families when UCT fees cost 100, you know, 100, 120,000 a year. So what are you saying, you know, what must happen to those students who can't even access funding commercially? We need to start seeing a credible solution to the missing middle problem across the, the, the sector and, in, and starting to think creatively of how we can finance higher education across the board. And what kinds of possibilities do you think exist for coalitions and collaborations between students at university campuses all over the country mm-hmm. in service of these goals and in service mm-hmm. of developing these strategies? Look, I think we are lucky enough to be living in 2016 and communication and collaboration does happen, definitely between SRC presidents and SGs and just leadership. So we're in, we are in communication. We are lucky enough that this year we've had lots of spaces to engage on these questions, whether it you know, is at, me, at meetings with the government or just offline. So there are lots of opportunities. And I think collaboration is crucial and it's fundamental because this is actually a national discussion. Um, it's not institutionally specific. And in order, if we're going to ever achieve anything, it must always be at a national scale. It cannot just remain in our institutions. Our institutions heavily rely upon government subsidies, and government subsidies are the actual problem. Government subsidies are not rising with inflation, which then means that fee increases uh, need to compensate for that. And that's been happening at UCT for years, where we've been having fee increases of nearly double and sometimes you know, double inflation. And that's completely unsustainable. I think on this question of government subsidies, it's, I think that's really kind of the heart of the problem mm. or perhaps a solution to the problem. Mm. And part of me wishes that you could, in fact, get the direct cell phone number of um, Secretary General <laughs> Gwede Mantashi so that you can tell him your views and the views of students mm. on the need for much more secure, much more sustainable, much more rigorous government funding to higher education. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think we we're all in agreement, and, but I think we we as uh, referring to students and student leaders um, and institutions uh, perhaps may differ is our methods at achieving that. Vice chancellors have been trying to lobby, you know, the Department of Higher Education and National Treasury for years around the issue of university subsidies. You know, students obviously have the capacity to shut down universities and be a lot more radical in their action in achieving this. But underpinning this demand is the highlighting of the fact that. You know, university subsidies need to be looked at and how much money we're putting into the sector needs, you know, needs strong attention. The country or government has been slowly decreasing the amount of money that they're giving to higher education, especially to institutions that they view as being previously uh, white and advantaged, which is, you know, principally correct. Like, I agree that the University of Cape Town should be getting less attention than Univen, for instance. But we haven't done adequate or they haven't done enough to protect the poor and the working class in those institutions. They've instead looked at these institutions at these, you know, as everybody at UCT is wealthy. I've been to meetings with, with the department and with, uh, with Treasury where it's like, oh, but you're from UCT, uh, you speak a particular way, you are, you're from a rich institution, we don't have to worry about you. And what does that mean? It means that uh, black students are the ones who are, are going to bed hungry. It's the black poor student who doesn't have access to books who can't keep absorbing these uh, insane free increases. And and then again, it's always the black student who must disrupt the academic project to allow for space to breathe and allow for their their voices to be heard. Is disrupting Um, the academic project the best way to get the attention of government? I mean, if history has any lessons, it looks like it is. Truth be told, I've had uh, several meetings with the Department of Higher Education this year in my term. And I can tell you that... uh, it seems as though government only takes, and any institution really, only takes demands of students seriously once we threaten their position, that being a number of things, economic, power, authority, whatever. And that's simply because of the asymmetric power relationship that exists. Government have the ability to say, look, there's no money. But if we threaten operations and we're, if you force them into a corner, it seemed that they'll find the money. And I mean, I just actually read a, a report now in the business day around, uh, I think somebody in the Department of Higher Education has said that, you know, National Treasury has signaled to them that there is, you know, there is no money anymore. There would be no money. Uh, and that they are recommending a increase of fees by at least uh, CPI. And, you know, I think students across the country are not going to be up for that discussion. You know, they need to start looking at where they can start saving money. I mean, we have a lot of ministries. I went to the budget vote on, for national parliament and that, that parliament, you know, budget is also a trillion rand. <laughs> so it's starting to, you know, become concerning that government can't strategically see that higher education is at risk if they continue thinking that they, that business is, is, is as usual, uh, because it's not. And what role do you think academics can play in the struggles that may lie ahead? You mentioned that, and I think it's in fact been quite public knowledge, that there is a strong conservative um, chapter, if you like, of uh, academia at UCT. Some professors have written public opinion pieces, kind of deriding the student movement, which is not to say that they speak for all academics, of course, but no, of course not, so yeah. what would you say to, to the academic right? And, and what kind of role do you think academics can play? I mean, I hope that there could be ways of forging coalitions between students and academic staff, because we're all in the same boat. 
together. When students suffer, we suffer, and vice versa. When we suffer, students suffer. So what would you say on, on, on those topics about how to cross that divide that I sometimes worry is growing wider and wider between staff and students? academic staff in particular, I mean? I mean, for me, I'm very clear on this. I, I, you know, I've always said that the University of Cape Town will transform and need to, will decolonize by will or by force. So it's either you with us or you're against us. And it seems aggressive to some people. It seems unnecessary. I'm like, you know, it's the reality of this country. We're moving forward. And if you're not willing to move forward, then it's clear to us that you cannot then move with us. Uh, you can't be in a space that you're not keeping up with. So, I mean, I have very little to say there to the academic right. Where, where, where I think uh, the conversation really lies are, are the progressive academics because they can do a lot more than we can to bridge those gaps. I think it's the role of students to be the most radical and the most on the ground, if you want to call it that. And where academics can come in uh, on multiple levels, on lobbying for issues, right? It would be great if we walked into Senate and Senate was of the view that indeed students had a point, you know, that our, that our institutions must transform and that they need to become more accessible. And we need to start actively tackling these weak arguments that transformation and uh, excellence are mutually exclusive and that uh, where black people are present, that signals uh, low quality or that the University of Cape Town or any other higher education institution is fine and we're doing well. Those conversations need to be taking place all the time within academic spaces. And perhaps where, you know, where progressive academics come in is doing that lobby work, those discussions, that education of that sector, because they are in a better position to understand the perspectives that other academics perhaps may coming from. But you know, specifically advancing this conversation around the issue of fees and, and just student activism in general. Academics and you know the Black Academic Caucus at UCT are a very good example of this, playing in being agile and being able to play a, mul- you know, a multitude of roles, whether it be providing resource support to, to students who are activists and uh, students who are affected by perhaps disruptions uh, or strikes, right? By creating a, also a space where academics are willing to be engaged in different methods or problem solving, right? So if there's a strike or if there's a shutdown, Assist your students. We we live in a you know we live in a digital age. So how can you utilize, let's say, uh, um, the internet to provide a lesson or point students towards resources that the disruption of the day to day learning project of being physically present doesn't necessarily mean the disruption or the stalling of the learning project that could happen at home or independently. It means that if students are if if you know the state or the you know university executive and the management decide to prosecute students. Progressive academics can perhaps intervene and, and get involved where, you know, where obviously it's warranted, where students are arrested for things that are clearly justified. So I, I, I think academics play a, a crucial role in the, the, the maintenance of a conversation at an academic level um, and providing content, um, perhaps where spaces are, are, are a little bit too adversarial and exclusive um, towards students. Um, and that could, I think, aid in broader transformation beyond the question of, let's say, fees. It speaks to curriculum, it speaks to admissions, it speaks to a number of different things. Absolutely. Well, Rory Sun, Mosedi, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a really detailed and expansive discussion. And I must say, I've gotten a lot of insight into some of the nuances of student politics. 
And I'm sure our listeners will also enjoy that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Cool. Is there anything else you wanted to add, perhaps, that you didn't get a chance to say? You know, lastly, what we're witnessing at our institutions um, is reflective of the, the change that's going to be, that's happening in this country. Um, and I just hope that our institutions, one, will stop trying to become Oxfords in South Africa and truly embrace what it means to be African, to be uh, a university in 2016 in this context, that universities take their role in becoming catalysts of change in society very seriously. I think as of late, higher education institutions, in particular universities like the University of Cape Town, maybe to a certain extent WITS, but I can't really speak for other institutions, have been slacking on their social justice factor and their commitment to being the most forward thinking in every space. Um, and what we've done is that we've decided to hold on to arbitrary traditions that alienate, marginalize, and don't give life to students. I think higher education needs to move away from giving people or providing spaces for vocations only. I think South Africa needs to really take the idea of an education very seriously when we're looking at issues of curriculum. In the world that we're living in, things are constantly changing and we need to start preparing young South Africans to lead and to create uh, rather than to occupy. And I hope that this generation of students and academics and the institutions that will form will truly strengthen our country and our continent. Today's conversation has taken us on a long journey. We've thought about questions of transformation, fees, funding, issues of the role of party politics in student politics. Overall, I find it really reassuring to know that there are leaders like Rory Sang out there, engaged, articulate, passionate, committed to the student cause, and that those leaders are working hard to engage in the complex matters that we're facing in order to represent students and their needs and their interests. I hope that academics and students can continue to find ways to work together and listen to one another in the times that lie ahead. My name is Fernando Mate. Uh, I'm studying uh, towards a BSc in civil engineering. Well, it started when there was an increase uh, in, in fees. I think it went to like 11% or something like that. And then uh, students felt like uh, it was too much, you know, especially uh, looking at the inflation rate and then comparing to the increase and stuff. So people felt like it was just ridiculous to just increase the fees. Uh, the SRC sort of met up with students and then a decision was made to actually protest yeah so actually they did uh, quite a, a an impressive job i think yes actually i haven't seen anything so far but right now i feel like we've achieved a lot uh, yeah 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 if they they continue like uh with the same spirit obviously it will be a different yeah uh, like uh, src group but if they can continue the same spirit we might actually get somewhere, but I feel like we, we, we shouldn't like sort of rush it. It should be like sort of a, a gradual thing, you know. We need to understand that as much as we want what we're looking for, we need to know that there's also other issues that need to be resolved. Yeah. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at FITS. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. 
The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Today's show was presented by Mehita Ikani. Research, scheduling, editing and production was done by Balungi Limbenyane. Thanks to Rory Sang Mosedi, Bongi and Fernando for their time, as well as David Hornsby for his moral support. Jürgen Mikkel created our jingles.